Throughout modern history, women have faced many societal barriers to entry in fields ranging from sports to sciences. While the last century has seen a lot of progress towards equality, the playing field is still not level in many important ways. In this episode, we talk about why this inequality exists and discuss the various forms it takes in our culture. We ask if women have to be exceptional outliers to make a mark in any field. Is being average an option for women or is the bar always higher for them? Hello Nivedita, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Hi, I'm good. It's nice to have you. Do you want to start with uh, telling the listeners about you? What is it that you do? Okay. So, hi, I'm Nivedita. So, I am a PhD student at Stony Brook University in physics. I joined about five years ago. And hopefully, the end is around the corner, like maybe a year or so is the plan. Um, my broader theme that I investigate is nuclear physics, uh, experimental nuclear physics. I help build detectors for particle physics, and I also do some data analysis and a lot of teaching in between. So that's what a typical day looks like for me, one of these things, basically. Um, what else? That's it about me in the line of PhD. Um, today, I think overall, the broader theme we were going to talk about is what it is to be a woman in physics. And also within that, wrap the idea of failure in this, but let's see how this goes. Yeah. For the common person, do you want to briefly tell why it's important to study nuclear physics? I mean, of course, from the, from, from the obvious application of nuclear energy what else is there that's interesting specifically okay. to you good that you brought up the question in that specific fashion uh, i although okay i have got nothing to do with nuclear energy like zero zilch so that entire field of energy harvesting and you using nuclear physics for energy comes broadly under the idea of nuclear engineering I don't know anything about it more than what I learned in my undergrad, and that's all my connection with it is. So then what does it mean that I study nuclear physics? Um, a lot of people might have heard of this organization called CERN, which is in Switzerland. Uh, it hosts a large hadron collider. Basically, it's this big ring of 27 kilometers in circumference. And in this ring, they basically uh, in counterclockwise and counterclockwise, they bring protons and protons and they collide them head-on collision and they study fundamental interactions using this collision. The second biggest such lab, such collider lab, is actually in the US, in the state of New York. It's called Brookhaven National Lab. They study a different branch of physics called a different type of physics, you can say. Uh, the force we study is called strong nuclear force, things that bind a proton together, things that bind, there are elementary particles inside a proton called quarks, things that bind the quarks together. So to study these more complex systems, uh, what Brookhaven National Lab does is they also have a collider called the WIC, Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider. And 
they bring together, instead of colliding proton and proton, like CERN does, they collide gold nucleus on gold nucleus. And using these heavy nucleus collisions, they study fundamental interactions within a nucleus. So, and I study prop right after this fundamental interactions, each of these are, you know, you can consider them to be like a mini Big Bang or whatever. Right after this, there is a plasma that is formed and I study properties of this plasma. When I use the word right after this, after the collision, what I mean, the time frame I mean is around 10 to the minus 20 seconds. So it's really, really right after it that this plasma is created and it lasts for only about like another 10 to the minus seven seconds or so. And we have signatures from this plasma that I can detect in my detector. And I use this to study the plasma. Uh, sorry for the long detour or whatever, but this is what I do. And this, as of now, it's anybody who tells you or gives you a list of practical application is lying to you. There is no, at this point, there is zero practical application, but that's how science develops. It starts off with a curiosity. It starts off with people wanting to know just because they want to know why things happen a particular way. And later on, as a byproduct, there might be, you know, things that come out which has been useful to the society. Like a lot of particle physics and high energy physics uh, have come up with instruments that's used in medical technology these days, like the PET scan and the CAT scan and the MRI. And everything is basically a small scale physics detector, which all was born out of wanting to study fundamental particles. But anyone who says that that's the motivation is lying to you. The motivation is just that, hey, why does this particular quark in this particular environment behave this way? And that's all. That's the beginning and the end of the question. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of, I think, a quote from Michael Faraday. Mm -hmm. He used to tour around and give demonstrations of magnetism and electromagnetism. And someone from the audience asked him, this is all cool, but of what use is this? And Michael Faraday said, oh, of what use are babies? Meaning that uh, na nascent ideas, although not useful now, might turn out to be very useful later. And I think even beyond that, just studying why and answering this curiosity of why some things behave that way, that is that is very interesting in and of itself. I agree. I totally agree. I think, uh, I mean, economically speaking, I feel the government organizations must find it somehow useful to fund us because most of science, cross science organizations are funded by the government. So they have somehow, they somehow believe that there's some use in giving physicists the money to play around with their toys. There's some things that they might give out of it, which might be useful, uh, be it in the computational world or in the detector world or anything that may be. So I think we are somehow justifying the money, but not directly. Yeah. So what do you, uh, what are your thoughts? Or I guess the broader theme of our discussion is your uh, inequality and specifically gender inequality in mm -hmm. STEM. Mm -hmm. And I want to start out by discussing why this inequality exists and mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Right. Um, so I am, I want to preface my entire 
opinions and discussions today by saying this, that I am not an expert at all in this field. I, I know I'm only going to tell you anecdotal things and things that I've read and learned from my own curiosity, but I've not definitely not researched anything. In a way, I feel, I mean, someone pointed this out to me and I think it's true. In a way, I think my journey as a physicist has made me less confident to speak on topics that I don't know much about uh, because I'm so aware of things that I probably do not know about it because I, I go in such depth in my own field. I'm, I'm always so conscious of how little I know in other fields. So I feel very put on the spot or very awkward when I'm talking about other fields. Having said all this, so this is just going to be what I think and what my thought process has been over the last few years of being a woman in science. Um, to come back to the question of why does equality exist? I think equality in itself, I don't think, I think it's very quote unquote natural. I mean- You mean here, inequality? I'm sorry, yes, inequality, I'm sorry, yes. Inequality itself, I think, is um, natural in the sense of nobody is born with equal skills as another person. Some people have different skills in terms of emotional intelligence, strength, physical strength, ability to do certain craft, ability to do perhaps certain artistic pursuits. So there is an intrinsic differences in us, and that's just a fact. But... For me, what is surprising, and I, as it should be for everyone, is when these equalities are drawn in the sand or the boundaries of these equalities are drawn by things like uh, gender, race, caste, uh, sexuality, where you associate the, you say certain groups of people, you make broad statements like certain groups of people will not be good at certain things. And I think that kind of doesn't make any sense. That's just wrong. It's just bad science and it's just wrong. That's where I stand at least. Uh, so why does equality in gender exist? Specifically speaking in science, but I think in a broader thing, I feel it's largely encoded in society and culture. I genuinely believe that. I'm using the word belief again because it is just it is what it is a belief. It's not a scientifically rigorous statement. I believe that it's completely encoded in society because everyone, every micro society which doesn't have this kind of strict social norms seems to be performing differently than micro societies which do. Which is why it makes me conclude that it's something just the way people of different genders are brought up that makes them think that one of them feel that they are more they are they have more they're more equipped to do science than the other gender and that's all i think the difference is one thing in particular that we should discuss is why does it almost always favor males in humans and there are two questions hidden in that okay. so one is why has it you can look at societies which evolved independently for example your western civilization and most of europe mm -hmm. and let's say the american subcontinent which mm -hmm. were separate for a long period in history but there was male dominance 
male dominance evolved in both of them separately so that is surprising that many societies many human societies independently right. evolved that way right and then the other thing if we look at our biological cousins mm-hmm. it's not that prevalent in even mammals let's say for example if you look at elephants mm-hmm. elephants is a female dominated society where most important decisions are, are taken by elder females in the group right and there are biological justifications for that as well i want to know your thoughts on why gender inequality favors males and if you have some theories about that or if you read something that would be able to explain this sure um so the first question is i i agree it is peculiar that um societies which develop independently have almost arbit- arbitrarily chosen the same gender to be the superior gender and that is a strange thing i agree why would why would that happen and i can see why somebody would read from this and say that probably means there's something intrinsically superior about them but i would like to challenge the notion of independently developed society because i'm more and more conscious of the fact that what we consider as independent societies have had such long years of uh trade and exchanges and cultural exchanges that today we feel like it didn't exist in that century what that i, I mean let me let me put it a different way i'm sorry when we look at the society today we expect some things to be so intrinsic to our society that we don't realize that it was actually borrowed from somewhere else and one of the more obvious thing that comes to our mind is you know food cultures there are a lot of people who are so opinionated about this idea of authenticity in food and about how food is made in a particular fashion with this particular ratios of things without realizing that things that you consider intrinsically let's say indian or of german or italian or whatever wasn't even available in your country just a few centuries ago like for instance potato which is like so omnipresent in, in the entire indian subcontinent was not even there it came to india like in the 18th century or something 18th century that's very very new but i think an average person thinks that potato has been in the country for 2000 years if not more which is not true so there's a word that my friend recently used in a different context called the social memory i think we think it's you know we are made to believe that society as we live today has always existed this way and we kind of project into the future like that without influences so i'm challenging that part of the statement that independently independently evolved societies have all come up with male as the superior this one what i believe is it could be possible that independently evolved societies have got different had different uh, social hierarchies be it male female and also there are these uh, tribes which have this thing called a super uncle which is basically the trans people uh, who who are the lucky or the dominant groups in society but i think there have been worlds like uh, influences on global scale be it christianity be it colonization be it the entire uh, imperialistic idea all of this which happened on a more global scale 
which kind of dictated certain rules of society and changed the existing society from how it was. Uh, one other example is this idea of how the Britishers brought the idea of shame to uh, women in Kerala, how most women in Kerala never wore never wore a blouse at all. They never had, they only wore like a skirt or a sari below their waist. And this idea of shame was something that was introduced by the Britishers. We don't think of it like that. We think of blouse and sari covering your breast as something so intrinsic that we don't think that an, uh, a colonizer could change the society so much you don't even know what how it existed before unless you research. Okay, sorry, long going off in a tangent. But what I'm trying to say is, I don't think I don't think it's true that independent societies develop with male as superior. I think people might have done research about it. I am not certain, but as far as I know. It could very well just be a dominant force which dictated and made sure this is the way it is. Given that it is, no, you can I'm certainly sure. Yeah, you can certainly say that about European colonization and the fact about the women in Kerala that is very interesting. I didn't know about that, but even if we don't have an answer for this now, mm-hmm. I guess we can at least bring up this open question. But I think one example of societies which stayed apart for very long mm-hmm. is the American subcontinent versus the European subcontinent. This I think it's safe to say before, that for... Before Columbus, are you talking about the tribal times? Or... Yeah. Okay. The Native Americans. Yeah, pre-Columbus. Yeah, okay. Because they were so far apart that they weren't immune to each other's diseases. But uh, still they had these two separate societies had male dominance even before even before they were introduced to each other you so, may be right but do you know for certain that the native american different tribal groups which they themselves did not communicate much with each other they themselves lived their own uh, you know microcosms of society i i haven't read it it could be true do you know if they were genuinely male dominated societies I feel like someone, yeah, I feel like it's possible that they were not. I'm not saying it, they were not, but I'm saying it's possible. And just that this entire I think if they were, America changed it. Yeah. I think if there were, if there were significant portions of them which were not, mm-hmm. it would stand out as a very significant outlier. Like we would have known about it if it was not. See, but that's the thing. I mean, this is, this is why I, I gave the example of this women in Kerala. Oh, by the way, it comes in this book by this, uh, The Ivory Throne by Mani Espile, uh, this story about this Kerala mm-hmm. woman. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. the reason I told about the Kerala women is that the British history in India is a very recent history. And still we mm-hmm. have forgotten that different societies of in India lived very differently prior to the British. And there was a, there was a uniformity that was introduced amongst uh, like across the continent by the British. Like today, we tend to think that we have lived in this particular fashion all along. Whereas just about 200, 300 years ago, we lived drastically differently. So I feel, and this hmm. this, uh, this thing about the invasion of the America, uh, is it 1500s? Sorry, I don't know when Columbus invaded the US. But I think it's a long time ago. And yeah. I challenge the statement that it would have stood out. I think it need not have, given especially the kind of diseases that European brought to the American land that wiped them out in hordes, that, you know, 
killed communities in you know large large communities were killed off unless that i'm sure there are studies i'm just saying i've not read it but we we should be careful of making statements saying they if they had a say matriarchal society not just matrilineal but matriarchal society it would have stood out and we would have known i don't think we would have known i can imagine that it would have been wiped out by external influences so much that it doesn't even exist in our memory or in unless you do deep research on it is where i stand yeah that's a good point because there is no way of getting history from beyond that Correct. beyond from before that point right Correct. yeah yeah i i agree the that part of and that part of history would be very difficult to trace back the other thing you brought up is how recent the british invasion of india was or at least when they left mm-hmm. i think um so if you say from the constitution standpoint mm-hmm. 70 years mm-hmm. that is that is just like one person old and having an entire nation that is one person old it's definitely an outlier and i think people don't think about that quite often absolutely very true so yeah coming back to there was a second part of your question which is why male so given that okay fine whatever let's say it's it's it developed for whatever reason but why men why not women ah uh, i don't have an answer i i have i'm going to I, i'm going to um there is a a common theory of why male dominated society is attributed to um physical strength and attributed to the idea of oh we have been developed or we have evolved from a farming based society and um because of which the physical strength is what mattered the most and which is why men formed the head of the household the on first glance i think this makes sense but there's something i read in this book called sapiens by yuval noah harari i'm sorry something might go <clears throat> by yuval noah harari um which i thought was very very interesting he says if you look at let's say colonization it's not that the it's the powerful country which colonized the less powerful one it's typically the weak barbaric countries which colonized a really rich and a really rich and wealthy countries similarly uh you know if you look at basically and if you look at kings and army and the way infantry is formed the strongest men are foot soldiers not the one who leads the command the person who leads the command requires a completely different set of skills be it you know being able to they need to be able to say talk different languages talk across different community groups bring people together be a little diplomatic and scientifically it's shown that women are better at all of this so it cannot be strength it's just puzzling so this this line of strength is why what determine matriarchal society i think is not right and it's more beautifully given in a chapter by sapiens uh, i highly recommend this book to anyone uh, who wants to read something interesting during these times or whenever because it talks about different aspects of society it talks about uh, in patriarchy inequality money war all sorts of things but there's one particular thing of he breaks down this notion that 
This muscle power is what caused male dominance. He breaks it down to show different examples how it is not the physically strong person society which dominated. It's some other skills and going by that logic, it doesn't translate that men should dominate. And I thought that's, that's pretty interesting. So, but that also means I'm not answering your question. Why men? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a mystery. I, I think it makes no sense to me. Yeah, that's uh, certainly true. And maybe if we find an answer to why is a, this has happened like this, because it's clearly not a coincidence. And if we ever learn why in a conclusive way, maybe it will get us further into solving this problem. When we uh, talked about this uh, before, you meant you gave an interesting example with Hillary Clinton. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, As it, it's specifically about uh, an anecdote about the election. Right. Um, so I remember, yeah, during so the year I moved to the US, it was in the middle of the... So I moved in 2015, August. So it was leading up to an election year. And it was very interesting election year. And because I had no skin in the game, I could take a back seat and enjoy the process back then. And then the world came tumbling, tumbling down. Anyway, I don't I didn't mean to, I don't like hyperboles. I'm sorry I said it. I was trying to be cheeky. I shouldn't be. Anyway, about Hillary Clinton, I remember I read a New Yorker article which said, which titled almost, and it said, one of the problems of Hillary Clinton is that she listens. And I thought, what? And then it went on to say about how uh, to elect a president, you want someone who's basically taking the center stage and he's talking and dominating and powerful. Basically, we are using, and it's we don't want someone who listens. And I, and I, of course, the article was trying to point out the irony of it. It wasn't, it wasn't trying to show anything negatively about Hillary. And exactly what I want to point out, the irony that we think that world leaders, their first main quality that we expect in a world leader is their ability to dominate and their ability to show power, but not their compassion and not their ability to listen is very strange. It's just incredibly strange that we expect people to solve our problems, but we elect those who would not listen to our problems. And yeah, I thought that was pretty ironic. And again, if I believe, if I, if I, and this is obviously biased, but if I were to make a list of what I want in a world leader, from today's perspective, women have it much more than men. Again, that's also encoded in the society, women being more compassionate or whatever. All of this, I think, is encoded in society. But in today's society, I think they have better qualities to lead. There's far more diplomatic, they're far more non con uh, you know there i don't know that's my experience that, that was the example that i gave you when we were talking on a side note i did a bit of googling about uh, american indian tribes uh-huh. and i at least have a couple of examples which are known to be matriarchal uh-huh. so one of them and I'm not I'm not gonna pronounce this okay. right, but one of them is is Haute no Sony. Okay. They were matriarchal. And then Hopi were believed to be matriarchal and matrilineal. Mm-hmm. And 
there were some others which were also patriarchal one example is apache mm-hmm. but yeah there are definitely at least known right. known records of tribes being matriarchal yeah. very nice it's good to know i mean i yeah. i i it it's confusing in a way i've always thought it's a little confusing to study to look at things from indian society because we have been colonized by someone who's culturally so different from the indian subcontinent it leaves you in a very limbo and a mixed state in the sense of i don't know what to make out of how can we have societies with dominant um women goddesses women deities and have such a deeply patriarchal society how can we have a society where we are not it's not new to us to see women in power be it a chief minister or a prime minister or a finance minister but yet their roles at home does not change we we have mixed things up very strangely in some ways we are in some parameters we are better than a western society when it comes to equality in other society in other parameters we are failing much worse and i don't know i mean in a way i'm looking for um, non contradiction in societies which never happens societies are, are always contradicting one another um, but i find it interesting that we are mixed in a very strange fashion there is i feel there's a lack of consistency in our patriarchy i don't know why but i feel there is something different and lack of consistency in our nature of patriarchy we're going to talk about this inconsistencies later on and some of them are surprising but before that i want to get your thoughts on stem specifically right. and what has been your experience in in your phd or even your education before okay um so here's the deal with respect to my story and yeah it's so i'm going to say this because i think it's okay sorry let me let me try again i i sometimes get very confused in my own thoughts sorry let me start over what are my experiences okay what the year i joined phd which is in 2016 Uh, 2015 i came to stony brook as a master student and a year later is when i joined as a phd student i was the only female phd student in a class of 30 it was a class of yeah and but i i didn't feel very you know anything weird about that there were other women physicists well meaning women physicists in our department who had set up meetings and teas and coffee breaks with me to ask me if i'm doing okay if i'm doing fine so i thought that was incredibly nice of them but at the back of my mind i remember thinking in 2016 it's just 4 years ago I remember thinking that's completely unnecessary why are you putting a spotlight on the fact i'm a woman i don't like it and i used to think maybe that's the problem that you know you tend to put spotlight on women so they feel different whereas they really are not what i fail to recognize is that my upbringing with the, specifically with respect to my my 
you know, what I think of myself and my ability to do science did not change, did not have a gender bias in the sense of neither my parents nor my teachers ever thought that I could not do something because I was a woman. And that made a huge difference, which means I never saw myself as being unequal to another, another man. So that's why it never mattered to me. But it took me a while to realize that this is not most people's experience. I come from a very, very privileged society in India. Not probably not economically, but in India, societies are, the privilege in societies are divided more along the caste lines. And I, and I belong to the, you know, upper caste or whatever. And that meant education had a huge um, importance in our family. And typically in my neighborhood, in my society, how much you spend on education did not depend on gender. I was never, you know, you would see things in movies which says, oh, he's a male child, let's spend X amount. Oh, this is only a female child who will get married off. In my micro society, this conversation never happened, not even in the periphery of my vision. So all this little, little things made a difference to how confident I feel as a physicist and how okay I am that I would be hanging out in a, in a bar or a restaurant with all my friends who are all men and I would not realize I'm the only woman till someone else points it out to me. But this is a privilege and most women don't get this. And that's, 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 that's very, you know, it's very unfortunate, it's very sad and it's very unfair. And I spent a year or so and also making some enemies along the way, fighting, saying, but what is the problem? There is no problem. Why are you making it a problem? Without realizing people's, their own personal stories and realizing how it impacts them and how they view themselves as a physicist and as a woman in science. So this also ties in a little bit with unconscious bias and all that. But anyway, we'll come to that later. So my personal experience has been that, so I would say I was brought up like, like a man in a lot of ways, at least in terms of confidence. So, which is why even, you know, our department has got some really nice awards and things like that for women in physics to encourage more people to join. I feel very shameful to even apply to these things because I feel it's meant to address a different category of women who have really been through a lot more to get where they are and not for people like me who are just so damn privileged. And again, I'm going to stress on this point of privilege. People who haven't, uh, the thing is, privilege is very hard to recognize and understand because people who've never thought about it, they think privilege means, you know, it's very easy for them to say, but I've worked very hard to be where I am. Likewise, I have. I've worked very, very hard to be where I am, especially I started off in engineering and did all sorts of courses, did so much outside to try and keep up with what a physicist would have done to be where I am. So if someone comes and tells me, oh, you're lucky, I would certainly shoot back and say, of course I'm not. Because I don't want to hear that because it feels like they're dissing my effort. But privilege is a little more nuanced. It's not as straightforward as someone just picked me up and said, hey, you're a woman, here is your physics degree. It's not that straightforward. It's so much more nuanced that it's hard to understand that it was a little bit easier for you than it was for someone else. And that nuance is hard to understand unless you read about it. 
And honestly, I don't think I recognized it, but because of, again, coming back to the American election, because the dominant conversation when I moved to the U.S. was about white male privilege and about systemic racism and all that, it was easy for me to consume all that knowledge and suddenly one day realize, hey, I, I come from a similar society with similar advantages and disadvantages and systemic differences. It was easy for me to make that translation. But I also don't mostly, sometimes I, I bite people's ears off, but I also understand when people think, oh, I'm not privileged. And I think, I wish they read more, but anyway. Did I also again digress? I'm so sorry if I keep doing that. Oh, that's fine. One incident that particularly comes to my mind when I was doing my undergrad was one of my female friends came to me and said that they went to, she and some female friends went to a professor to ask about some career specific thing or about your master's or PhD or something like that. And they wanted to get an idea of what their final year project should be on with respect to that and something like that. And this professor brings up the fact that, oh, as a woman, you are going to have to move your career to where your, wherever your husband's job is right. going to be. And I thought that was such a ridiculous thing for a professor to bring up, in, especially when to the students you're teaching. And there was I didn't feel like there was any legitimate avenue for my friends to bring it up in i don't think there is up at that time apart from just forgetting about it there is anything they could have done i agree what can they do i mean that professor is is a is a part of the society that we live in who mostly think this way yeah we can challenge that one professor and complain about him but this is probably me being probably cynicism or whatever, but what can that achieve? Because the problem is much bigger and it's so encoded in people's mind that I don't know the way out of it. Yeah. One thing you spoke about earlier was men being confident about their yes. work. Do you want to... Oh, yes. Uh, do you want to flesh that out Absolutely. a little bit? And this ties back to the idea of failure a little bit. Uh, see, mm -hmm. the thing is, I, I can, I can speak from my own experience. Doing PhD is very, very hard. If I explain my research to you, you might say, yeah, that seems straightforward enough. That's fine. And it is. The research itself, it's not like it's deeply complex or anything like that. But there is, there is a difference between mulling. There is something about mulling over the same thing over and over for many years, which brings up all sorts of emotions from within you. There are, where tears are measured in rainfall units. So during this process, you're bound, it's... Most of the time you're failing. You succeed very, very few times. But the moment you fail, it matters who you, what you think about that failure and who you attribute that failure to. 
I strongly feel, firstly, it's been, there are scientific proofs that exist, which says women tend to have more imposter syndrome. What does that mean? Imposter syndrome is when you think, uh, I'm not good enough to be where I am today. And I fear that I may get caught. I feel like I am lying where I am today. People think I'm much better than I actually am. And one of these days I'm going to get caught. So imagine, you know, double dipped in batter of this imposter syndrome, doing your research and failing, not once, not twice, multiple times. It really hurts you. It really makes you think you're failing because you pretended to be, uh, say, good at something. And now that's come crashing and burning. And now everyone's going to know you're not good at it. So you ascertain all the blame for your failure on yourself. And that deeply changes how, how, how your confidence is. And it deeply affects how you're going to progress with that research. Because you need to be able to make bold, crazy plans and decisions sometimes. And you need to know if that doesn't work, that's fine. But most, a lot of women take the blame of failure on themselves much more than men do. And this is where it makes a huge difference. They start off as equal levelly. In fact, in fact, I would go as far as to say that when we begin, women are better physicists. Not because we are intrinsically better, but because for us to be where we are, it took us, a, the, the, the journey was much harder. So the pool you're picking from is from a different, you're kind of picking from the cream of the pool in some sense. It's like looking at the Indians in the US. It's not that all Indians are good at math. You've just managed to pick the people who really are good at math. So it's like that you've picked more among the cream of women than among men. And so I think they intrinsically start out in similar footing, if not more. But the repeated failure, I think, crushes them more because they take the blame on themselves. They deeply feel, I have been exposed. And I felt the same thing. I came in with an engineering degree. So huge amounts of imposter syndrome. In fact, after I was admitted, I emailed my professor at Stony Brook saying, I don't think I should take up this admission because I don't think I'm good enough. And he replied to me saying, we read hundreds of SOPs. And if we decide that you are good enough for this, why are you being hard on yourself? Why don't you come and try this out? And I did. And I said, okay, let's try. But I was so skeptical of my own ability to climb up. And I used to work hours to just keep my head above the water. And it seemingly felt like it was easier for other people. In a way it was because most people came with a physics background. But again, referring back to but in my childhood, I was not taught, I was brought up with quite a bit of confidence that I was able to push through these difficulties. Imagine coming to the such a hard thing to do and constantly thinking, oh my God, like you won't even be able to solve an assignment in front of your friends because you're scared they'll find out that you don't know how to do certain mathematical notations. Whereas the fact is most people don't. And most people feel confident enough to say, I have no idea. In a way, engineer, this cloak of I didn't do physics helped me because I used that as a cloak to say, I don't know, can you explain? Most people didn't have this cloak either. So anyway, that it come, coming back to failure, I think affects men and women differently. And that's just sad.
we don't, you know, people say sometime anecdotally, I mean, I'm not trying to blame again, but people say, oh, I know this one woman, she's an excellent physicist. I think what is more important is not that we have an equal opportunity as men to be excellent physicists, but that we have equal opportunity as men to be an average physicist, to be a bad physicist. Because men have the entire spectrum. Why are our failures, not just that she's a bad physicist, but women are bad in physics. Why are our failures more broad stroke, painted with a more broader stroke than men's failures? They don't carry the weight of the gender on their shoulders, we do. And that makes a difference. We should be, it's not an equal opportunity to excel, it's an equal opportunity to be average. It's an equal opportunity to be bad. And yeah, so I, whenever people say, oh, I have this one female student who's so good at tools. Sure, yeah, but there are also female students who are not, and that's fine. I just wish that wasn't the norm that you have to point out someone who's good at something. The bell curve should exist completely in all its shapes, in all its width. I, I like the point that you brought up about being an average or bad physicist. I think that articulate articulates the importance of this point very well. The other thing you mentioned was there is a difference not just between men and women and how confident about they are about their work, but also across different cultures, specifically between Asian and maybe American students in general. Do you, do you want to talk a bit about that and just try and guess why that may be? So, um, so as part of my PhD program, I am, we have a compulsory one-year teaching that we have to do. We typically teach like lab courses or something. One or two years. After the stint of teaching, I've always really loved to teach. So I went out looking for opportunities and avenues for me to teach. And um, one other thing that I came up with, uh, so that my university offered is this program called uh, Women in Science and Engineering Mentorship, WISE Mentorship, where basically in, in our local communities, there are high school students who have expressed interest in physics. And there are mentors who are grad students who have said, we are willing to teach it. And we are kind of matched up with each other. And I design an entire curriculum of 10 sessions of two hours each to teach the high school, school students on a particular topic. And I've been broadly talking about high energy particle physics. So I've done this for three years. And so again, these are anecdotal things. What I came to realize is it's, it's not at high school level in India, again, in my society, if you are good at math and physics, you are not bullied for it. You're not mocked for it. You are, that, that, that arm of intelligence is actually respected even among children or even among an average society, it's actually respected. There is that difference here. If you're good at math and physics as a high school child here, I don't know if uh, television is a, a reflection of society or a society is a reflection of television, 
But you know the stereotypical American TV show where they show this uh, child who, who's good at science is this dorky child who's not very social and he's very in the corner doing things by himself. So there is that image of a physicist so much more strongly embedded here. You know, people who don't play sports, people who don't interact too much, who's in the corner reading a book and writing complex math equations. And when that image exists, and when you look at yourself as a child and you think, am I that person? Most people feel, but I'm not. And you tend to disassociate yourself from science because you think, but I'm not that dark person. I'm not that darky person. Whereas if you had a society where physicists or scientists could be any type, some women who can be fashionable can be physicists. Men who are excellent at sports can be physicists. If that existed, and so you're able to see a part of yourself in another person who's good at physics and society appreciates for it, it changes your relationship with science. So in that aspect, I'm saying again what I said before, I think, I mean, India has got a bit of everything, but I'm talking about the more educated class of India. I think they, the children who are good at science from that group are not bullied to the, to the extent that a child here is. Again, when I say a child here, I'm not talking about children of just new immigrants from, from Chinese heritage or Indian heritage, because they again come with a lot of values of education and they'll push your child past these kind of activities at school. But an average, you know, American has this attitude of, oh, you're good at science and there's a certain bullying aspect associated with it. So I think culturally it sets them back a little bit. Because if I look at, again, the physics program PhD, there are very few women scientists, I would say about 20% maybe. And out of that, there would only be about 10% women scientists from the US, which is very sad, which really speaks of how bad the society is in pushing physicists or scientists from the American pool into, the, into grad school and something that really needs to be addressed and fixed. And not just, this is where averages matter less because if you look at averages, again, Indian students and Asian students will kind of tend to push the averages to do science, but you need to, it needs to address a white American and see why women of white American heritage are not taking up sciences. Why do they feel not confident to take it up? And I think it needs addressing. And through my years of teaching, I'm trying to learn the nuances and address it specifically, but I'm nowhere close to it yet. One thing that, one TV trope that's very common is that scientist, a scientist is this eccentric person who doesn't have a great social circles and sometimes not great social skills. I think that is harmful. Absolutely. And do you think, do you, do, do you I mean, you are like a nuclear mm -hmm. physicist, do you think science is done that way Not in real all. life? So again, it's it, it ties back different aspects of our conversation. Um, I remember this, this again, slight detail. There's a friend of mine who is uh, who's homosexual. I was talking with him late into the night one day. And in that conversation, I asked him about what it is to discover your sexuality as you were growing up. And something he told me struck me as, you know, important. In media, at least, and it's true 
even in even in early 2000 in indian cinema i'm not sure about too much about the western media but certainly in the 90s there is a certain flamboyance that's given to characters who are played by gay men so people who don't mm-hmm. naturally have that flamboyance but still feel that they are gay teenagers they get very confused they don't associate with the stereotypical gay image but they feel like they are they they probably are gay it takes them a while to unpack this and realize okay i am gay but i do not confine to this particular mold of the society and similarly if there is a image of what a scientist is which is that dark darky student in the corners doing things by himself and you think i like science but if that's what life offers for scientists i am not that and you dissociate yourself from it which is why again women who might feel i like science but a typical scientist is a there's a machine learning algorithm which paints it how a typical scientist looks like it's going to paint a male guy probably a male guy with blue eyes so if you look at it and say oh i'm not that person oh ignore the blue eyes i'm sorry if i'm not that person then i shouldn't be a scientist that's a problem which is why representation matters which is why it's important to lift different aspects of society so that the next generation is able to see a piece of themselves in the in the scientist when i teach my students i thought a lot about what's the message i want to give them i've i've very very deeply thought about this and i have you know my i have a book in which i write it's not really a diary it's just a collection of thoughts every once and again i've i've written down what's the message that will change them and i think the message i believe that might change them is seeing that i am a good physicist and i'm happy and i'm very social i absolutely love theater and i've played sp- quite a bit of sports in my life i read a lot seeing that none of this is a contradiction that you can be all of this and still be a good physicist there is a friend of mine in in my physics department who's a certified opera singer and he doesn't say that to people because he thinks if i tell that to people they will think i'm not a good enough scientist because i'm very good at an arts field which is not very common how sad is that how narrow minded and sad is that that we think there is just one i mean this is true in india also i'm talking more in the american context because i live here there is this attitude of scientists who dresses shabbily and with this this jolna pai whatever it is in english because that image comes from these bengali scientists because a lot of physicists comes from west bengal uh because of russian that was available to them communism this and that there's a reason why we have more bengali physicists than anyone else but again there is this image of uh this you know the side bag and shaggy male physicist with a cigarette that's our image in india we need to break that and when i lived in cmi i lived in cmi for a year and a half this is chennai mathematical institute one of the best institute for science and mathematics in india there was this girl who was so fashionable and i and i remember in the beginning that she, she's the first time this was 6 years ago this was the first time i met a women physicist who dresses so damn well and is extremely fashionable and i remember judging her a little bit 
and I'm ashamed to say that I judged her back then because she's an excellent physicist and I'm glad she had the confidence to pull it off and dress immaculately. And with years, I've, of course, moved far from that position. But it tells you what society does to you and what society does to you when there's not a good wide spectrum of representation, which is why it's also not nice that when they pick who should get into a PhD program in India, for instance, they pick using an examination, a gate exam or whatever, jam gate, whatever. It tests a very specific skill set in mathematics and physics. That's important, but that's not all that's important to be a good physicist. The amount of programming I do, the amount of, I spend my life debugging, I spend my life uh, fixing up things in my lab, which requires so much of electronics and hardware skills. You can't have such a narrow window to say, this qualification makes a successful physicist. This qualification makes one type of successful physicist. That's it. But yeah. I wonder if this is reality informing media or media informing reality it'll be really interesting to trace back where this originated was there a scientist i mean of course if that side if some media or some director or writer took an example of one scientist that he or she knew and put it into media and that's been perpetuated or someone just thought that someone just imagined that a science just should be like this and then after that that's informed society but it's it'll be really interesting to find I that mean, out in a way the number of scientists has changed by orders of magnitude in the last hundred years if you look from 1900 there were very very few scientists as a whole globally the number of branches of science has increased. And with that, the number of scientists. You cannot have one cookie cutters type of scientist to work across all of these fields. It doesn't work like that. So we are still using techniques from 1900 to determine whether someone will make a good scientist or not. Whereas what it requires to do science is so much more collaborative, such large scale experiments, experiments which are beyond speaking Talking specifically about physics, we are not living in the times of Rutherford and Neil Bohr where they, they could set up a tabletop experiment to prove what they wanted to prove. It doesn't happen like that anymore. Peter Higgs had to develop a theory and wait for 50 years to be proved that Higgs boson existed. And every other theory from now on is going to take an even more time because the kind of uh, engineering development you need, computational development you need, to be able to prove something is becoming increasingly complex. The kind of telescopes you need to observe the universe becoming so damn complex. And you need a person who understands mirrors. You need a person who understands electronics. You need someone who knows machine learning and deep learning. So it's so broad what it is to be a physicist. And we need, we need to, our net need, needs to be as wide as possible to catch people of this kind of talent into this pool to serve our own benefit yeah one one example that comes to mind about collaboration is uh terence tau and i encourage people to listen to his lectures on small gaps and primes 
and how that was a collaborative effort through email and someone made a fundamental break- breakthrough and after that uh there were they they sh- they made orders of magnitude more progress by just communicating with each other so i think that's i think that's interesting and people should uh know about that the other thing you mentioned is uh how there are differences across countries and there is this one thing i think that's important to talk about is a study which has been published i think 2 years ago or 3 years ago and it's broadly known as the gender equality paradox which basically states that um uh, i mean through data the scientists found that the more egalitarian a society is the wider the gender gap meaning that if amongst the countries that have reduced reduced the gender barrier to entrance into stem fields the stem field the stem gap actually widens and particularly they have observed that in more economically developed countries less women tend to choose stem mm-hmm. fields i th- there are this is a very nuanced statement and there is there are various societal reasons for why this may be important to analyze but i just wanted to get your thoughts on it first i'm glad you brought this up uh, because people tend to shy away from asking this question because they feel it might send a wrong message it might make people think hey look here is a proof that egalitarian societies um show that women do not want to do science there you have it i don't think it sends that message i think every analysis is important and it's look it's 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 an interesting thing right why does a society which is more equal have bigger gaps in uh gender gaps in sciences on the the flip side at least if i compare it to an indian society it seems our drive to engineering because that also comes under the broader theme of sciences not just pure sciences yes definitely motivated by economics so you can see that women are choosing to do engineering fields because it's a it's a window to a secure job and that's important so what about societies where you don't need that security where you're not looking for that security because of certain institutional wealth or wealth from parents where you're free to choose what you want to choose are you choosing to do science i feel i i i've really been meaning to look at the study because you know in a way i don't know the assumptions that are made in analyzing this data and i think these assumptions might <clears throat> might hold a little bit of information that i don't have yet uh in a way i think a little bit people not choosing to do science is the image of at least western society as in as in the us is strongly tied to what it is to be a scientist which has been completely misunderstood people don't understand how for instance there's a belief that women tend to do more 
biology or medicine related field than mathematics or physics. Why is that? It's probably because of in women naturally have a tendency to prefer fields where there's more human interactions than men do. Is that social, genetical, genetics? I don't know. But given that that's true, the association of, oh, this is a collaborative field is stronger in the biological sciences than it seems so in, the phys in physics. It's true to some extent, but it's also not true because it's also extremely collaborative. So is it this image that's making people not choose physics? Is it, is it something else? I don't know. I don't know why there's a difference. I know for a fact in Italy, apparently, there are more women physicists than males, but that's counterintuitive, not counterintuitive. That's basically, the reason for that has been studied to be that because it's a lower paying field, men are occupying spaces of higher paid fields than women. And there's an, again, an economic side to it. So it's such a complex question because it's such a dynamical space, right, the society. So any paper which claims anything, I, I'm going to be very um, hesitant on making comments because I don't know the assumptions made while they're making this statement. So I'm not going to take the statement. I'm not saying I, I will disregard it, but I will look more into it before I, I say anything concretely. But I've read this and I... Um, it is an interesting thing to look into, and I don't have an answer as to why this has happened. One thing people should read about this is the Harvard review to this study. And one thing that they mentioned, I'm not sure that Harvard mentioned this, but one thing that comes up on the Wikipedia article about this topic is that, okay, if you are, if you are economically motivated, uh, men and women are going to choose fields more equally because both of them both of them need the same economic support but when you re when you remove the economic incentive it just amplifies the notion that society has already had so for example one thing that students or the students in the study associated with taking a particular field was their parents belief in whether this field will field would be successful for them or not so i think one of the reasons this could be happening is that if you remove the economic barriers the biases in societies are yeah. just enhanced because you remove the economic incentive for people to choose a field of not of a field which is not of their liking but i think even if we currently don't have a good theory to support this or if we have even if we are not sure what to make of this i don't think people should just discard this data i think it is the biggest study of its kind i believe it's done across many countries and we should keep thinking about it till we have a good answer for it but a little tangential. Uh, I 100% agree with you that you can't discard this data because, again, that's a bad scientific method. You need to be able to, you can't let your biases that, oh, everyone is equal when men and women are equal and they can, they can achieve things equally. 
not value such a data and try to understand this data for, for all its merit. Um, having said that, one thing that is interesting to note is the field of um, uh, eugenics. Have you heard of this field of eugenics? No. What does that mean? I find this very interesting, right? So when we take crops, we have today managed to take crops and modify it and selectively breed it to be able to just give a crop, crop which has got a high yield. Similar with breeds of animals. We have done genetic modification to a lot of things to be able to breed a certain trait that we have considered to be more valuable. So the study of eugenics is the belief that we can cultivate a human society which is more intelligent than the average human society by only pooling people who are smart and making them, you know, you know, mate with one another, whatever. So be it. So the, at, for, when I first heard it, I thought, again, leaving ethics aside, there is certainly a huge ethical question to this. I'm not going to go there because that's a different topic. That's an interesting thought. I mean, I would say, that seems like a natural step, right? It feels like, okay, if you're able to harvest things with a certain quality, you might be able to, quote-unquote, harvest humans with a certain intelligence. So a hugely funded study in both America and in the US, more, sorry, in both America and in Europe, primarily starting out of the US, and one of the most famous labs called the Cold Spring Harbor Lab, which is a biotech lab in Long Island again, which was based on the belief that white men, white people of superior they are more intelligent so there was forced sterilizations there was all sorts of you know they're not even gray ethical area completely in the wrong to show and prove that or to make a society which is white dominated white supremacist because of the belief because of the fundamental belief that white men of women are better intrinsically better than black men and women or brown men and women. And a similar thing has been done in India also across a caste thing. This was during the British times. A friend of mine wrote an article about it. His name is not, the scientist's name is not coming to me to understand if people are, why are, the assumption was that Brahmins are more intelligent. And the question was, why are they more intelligent? How can we use this? But today after, you know, they pretend like this didn't happen at all, but all of the, uh, KKK movement and all the Nazi movement are all from similar ideas of certain race is more superior than the other and let's cultivate this race and sterilize the others. Now, why didn't this why why didn't this work? Why isn't this true? Why isn't it lies deeply in the fact that intelligence is not primarily genetic, which is amazing. Just like, you know, if your, your color of your eye is purely determined by the color of your eyes in of people in your family. So there is a, it's a purely genetically coded thing. Whereas intelligence is such a complex trait. And the definition of intelligence is, of course, changed with times that thankfully it's not completely passed on by passed on by genetics, similar to how muscular power is not just passed on by genetics. You might have an easier way to build muscles if you belong to a certain gene pool, but that's about it. What you cultivate with that is much more important. 
um, I think the word they use is epigenetic, which is basically, I'm not sure if I'm using this word correctly, but basically environmental factors, social factors, which make a difference. So with time and with studies, we understand that this isn't passed on by genetics. It's something more, uh, or rather, it's definitely somewhat passed on by genetics, but there's a more social and environmental factor, which of course led to huge amounts of uh, socialistic countries, which believe in equal opportunities. And today we feel that people have equal strength regardless of race, and race is a strange arbitrary line. When I say we feel, I believe, you know, people who actually look into literatures definitely will believe this. I feel the study of gender, it might take a similar trajectory. Studies which show intrinsic differences. There might be people who are willing to believe that those intrinsic differences are genetically encoded. But more complex studies which show that, no, there are X, Y, and Z social parameters which influence. And societies which could develop to be a more equal society from which we look back on and think, okay, that was completely rubbish. It's an arbitrary line. This is a hope and a belief. This is how we would, this journey would go. I'll try to find references of this and leave them okay. in the description. But when someone studied what makes a genius or I don't know, some there was a study which tried to analyze what made someone successful mm -hmm. in their career. You had at the very top of important attributes, you had things like IQ and things like that. But one of those surprising second or third contenders was death of mm -hmm. a parent, which was really surprising to me. And I think totally goes to your point saying it's how you are brought up. And I think if someone is brought up with some sort of an adversity, which death of a parent is, it is, if you think about it for some time, it's not surprising that they will end up doing right. better in their life right. in the long run. Yeah. And there is one, uh, you said something interesting a while back, but I have an interesting response now, which is a machine learning algorithm is going to draw a scientist as a Caucasian male with blue eyes. Uh, and I think there is... There is a very real, there are very real examples in which this happens. So I don't know if you've heard of, you must have heard of GPT-3, right? This open no, AI no. language model. Okay, but you can look it up in your spare time. But this is a problem with language mm -hmm. models in general. So what you try to do is, so one, if you have something that translates between language X and Y, one thing, one exercise you can do is, Translate from X to oh, Y and Y to X again, and see if you get back, back to a gendered X. language. Is that the thing you're talking about? Yeah. So you, no. if you translate, of if you translate, let's say she is a scientist mm -hmm. into a language which does not have a gender, and translate it back to English. So because mm -hmm. the gender gender information is lost in the intermediate language. Okay. The algorithm doesn't choose to say they are a scientist, but it chooses to say some algorithms make the mistake of choosing that he is a scientist. Mm -hmm. And this is a big problem. And it's a problem, you could say that this problem happens due to data, mm -hmm. but regardless of how it happens, it should be addressed somehow, either at the data level or at the algorithm level. Right. And imagine a thing like this deployed into mobile phones. 
and
people who have a problem paying parking tickets they are not rich people they are poor people who can't afford the money and you know paying a parking ticket may mean that they run out of their budget in a, in for the month but mm-hmm. if you have an ai system which just uses simple rules and argues with i mean just writes emails for you to argue about your parking ticket or even some let's say a petty crime like jaywalking for which you might have to pay a fine and if this ai system can really help people in need to mm-hmm. save some money should you not use it of course you should not blanket use ai in for things you don't completely understand but even now there is a lot of social imp- good social impact that ai can have which we might be missing out on if we if we are too scared to implement it and i think i think it's the same as it's a tool right and yeah. it just depends on people how you use it i mean you are studying nuclear physics but we all know how horribly it has been used in the past you're right i mean I mean, at the same time, I also believe I think technology has equaled the playing ground like nothing else has, and it's really made, yeah, it's really made information and opportunities available at such low cost, which nothing else has. So it's really pushed, kicked people forward in a lot of ways. So. definitely not arguing against any of this just randomly i thought of this but you're 100% correct i don't think it should be curbed it's it is in our hands as to how we direct it right the final thing that i wanted to talk about was personally for you do you think uh, representation matters or how how like can you talk about how representation matters and if there was someone who had been let's say particularly important in your journey in towards stem or physics research in general representation matters again solely for the fact that um okay again what is how much how what do you do to make a society equal is it is something I, i don't have i have opinions on i don't know concretely uh, for instance this idea of affirmative action or the idea of reservation in itself it's necessary because you cannot expect people from different opportunity of different planes of opportunities to compete at the same level but when does it become counterproductive when does it flip completely because it happens i mean it can flip completely and not serve any purpose at all what is that balance how much do you like if you take a a, a physics department and let's say you put you you definitely favor women physicists and you make sure that even though let's say in your application right let's say there are Hundred men who have applied, and there are like twenty women who have who have who have applied, and you're trying to take uh, admit thirty students, and someone naively says, "I want equal representation, so let's bring in thirty men out of the hundred application, and sorry, let's bring out fifteen men out of the hundred application, and fifteen women out of the twenty application." 
somewhere when you do this when you force equality like this it has an effect of again tying back to how confident does the woman feel knowing that she's here because she's a woman there are those aspects of it also like if in fact in our own uh, department stupidly there was a, a few years ago there was a circular that was sent out like a survey that was sent out where one of the question blatantly was do you feel you've been admitted because you're a woman that that hurts that that kicks at your con- kicks on your confidence even more so where is the balance what do you do how much the question isn't what is needed the question is or rather it's a two part question what is needed and what can you do or how much should you alter the natural progress of society to achieve that because there are counter effects to all of this i don't know the answer i genuinely don't it's a very complex problem that i'm not going to pretend to understand or have an answer about but i know for a fact that it's valuable to be able to see someone in the upper uh, strata of that particular field who looks like you there is an intrinsic value to that it makes a difference that we see a woman prime minister it makes a difference that we see a woman's defense minister it makes a difference that you see position people of different color religion whatever in positions of power because it makes you see yourself there but how do we get to that i don't know i genuinely don't know about personal story i don't have a single role model i i don't it's not one person with who i carry with me it's a bit of a lot of things a lot of a lot of books a lot of um i mean my belief that women are equal to men is is you know according to me it's founded in science because i went looking for are we equal in terms of being a physicist so a lot of books a lot of people and i think it's helpful to i mean it's counterproductive even for men i think when you know uh, so i'm so i'm married and i have a couple of people a couple of my friends who are all married who are all trying to establish an equal relationship uh in terms of houseworks in terms of cooking in terms of everything but it's very difficult for us to do that because one on one hand all happy marriages that we've seen in the past or all the marriages that we look up to it could be our parents or uncles whatever have all been unequal from today's perspective we wouldn't want to mimic that from today's perspective given that things that you look up to things that you regard as happy marriage is not what you want to mimic then what do you do with your own marriage how do you establish let's say equality in cooking do you make a schedule and cook what about the fact that because when i was growing up i was i've helped my mom more and there's an intrinsically i'm faster at cooking is it an equal time is it an equal effort how do you where is the line of equality and i don't have an answer i have many many just questions why am i saying all this because it really matters how you bring up children and i cannot cannot stress this enough we can fix it at a later stage a little bit but it matters the tools you give them as children not dividing them via blue and pink lines not dividing them with a cooking set and a mechanic set it matters you don't divide people like it because you disadvantage both gender when as they are growing up certainly women more than men not going to make it sound like oh patriarchy is hard on men 
it's also it's a little bit hard on them also because people who genuinely want to have an equal relationship both men and women are struggling to do it because they have not come up come with equal skills to do it and you have to correct it and constantly keep correcting it and it's a tiring and it's such an uphill process that i i i understand if some people say this is not for me so let's revert back to the way our parents were because it's easier to just establish along those lines given how we grew up it matters that you're exposed to different aspects of society my mom and my parents and my dad they strongly for good or for bad believe that i should know a little bit of everything i used to be my dad's sidekick when he fixed his car i used to be my mom's sidekick when you know we need to make some bhakshanam for uh, festivals or savory so whatever for festivals i i feel i've come up i am why this helps is not because i'm now at today i'm good at all of this but i'm not afraid of any of this and as a child when you're introduced to a tool you become less afraid of these tools as a grown up which is why we be it which is why older people find it the world of let's say just zoom is kind of scary for them because it's too too fast too new and new things are scary we all learn things at the boundary of our knowledge we don't learn things completely orthogonal to it we don't pick up a something which has no connection with our pool of knowledge on you know in general but we learn in our boundaries of our knowledge the reason i'm able to be interested and learn and dip my feet in stock market is my boundary of knowledge in mathematics is my boundary of knowledge in nonlinear systems in uh, of in understanding chaotic systems my reason to try and do something in food is again a boundary of knowledge that i've developed so growing up children teaching them everything that you can think of to expose i am going to go back to the adage of i don't think you need to be master of one it's better to bring up children as jack of all trades because then they will pick up what they need to become master on and still have all these in the background that they're not afraid of and it's important to do that so yeah it's not a personal story it's not i don't know if it's inspiring but either if you're at this stage where you're scared of something and if you really want to establish a more equal society oh on one hand i also i wanted to say this on the side recognize your unconscious bias because if you just think that you don't have any you're wrong we have everyone around us who are good at certain jobs being men who are good at certain jobs being women so we intrinsically follow the same machine learning patterns in, inside our own brains which makes us believe that certain genders are structured certain way recognize these and try to understand that this probably is more not genetic and try and equip yourself with different skill sets and not mark artificial boundaries and yeah going back to i wish we develop a society where women can be good bad and an average physicist yes that's very true and i think there are a few important messages there of course from apart from gender biases i think it's important to note that we have to strive to make things better for the next generation than they are for the current generations and this reminds me the fact the anecdotes that you brought up from your childhood reminds me of this quote from dune i don't know if you heard of dune but the protagonists in dune they say about him that learning to learn was one of the first things he learned mm-hmm. so i think i, i think a friend I, of mine I yeah 
who's in the who te- she teaches uh, young kids she was in TFI and now in Mantra and all that she also at one point said something about the first few years is we teach them how to learn and that's what it's about yeah true yeah go on sorry no that, yeah that's that's all i had to say and yeah. i think that's a good note to end the recording on what do you think yeah yeah sounds good yeah. this was extremely and thanks fun. thanks a lot for your time and one yeah. thing i want to mention towards the end as you said you don't know if your story is inspiring or not i don't think it's important i don't think that is important i think what's important is that your story is true and the yeah. fact that it's a true data point amongst many data points that people could just be aware of or take inspiration from i think that is good enough in and of itself so thanks Hi. that's a good point yes i am yes.